Our text for this morning is one verse out of the 10th chapter of John. It's verse 18. We'll read it in just a moment. There, there is in Hollywood, California, a Christian ministry you probably have never heard of called Master Media. It was started by a good brother named Larry Poland, and it's a solid evangelical outreach to the leaders uh, in our country's arts and, and media. I, I mean, you talk about some people with, with influence. Uh, Hollywood leaders are big-time culture shapers, and Master Media is there as a witness for Jesus in that place, calling influencers to faith and to godly values. And speaking of Hollywood, did, uh, did you watch the Oscars this year? <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I, as usual, did not either. I don't watch those, partly because I, uh, I'm not wild about who tends to win at those events. Uh, I don't think the best pictures actually get voted that typically, but it didn't used to be that way. The old history of Hollywood was to honor the really great movies, and for a long time, the most honored movie in Hollywood was Ben-Hur. It was also the most expensive movie of its times, costing, get this, four million dollars. <laughs> Um, which some of you will spend on your family's Easter videos. I understand. <laughs> that was in 1959 when $4 million was, you know, real money. But get this, Ben-Hur was nominated for 12, count them, 12 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor, and it won 11. Ben-Hur, it's a fabulous movie based upon a best-selling novel uh, the best-selling novel, in fact, of the 19th century. It was written by a very interesting man named Lew Wallace, who went on to become a Civil War general and the governor of the New Mexico Territory. It seems that Wallace was not a religious man until he found himself on a train, back when they stayed on the rails, uh, he found himself on a train <clears throat> with a notorious agnostic whose vehement argue, arguments against the existence of God provoked Lew Wallace to seriously think about the claims of Jesus Christ. And in the process, Wallace became convinced and convicted and converted and committed to the gospel which Ben-Hur was meant to promote. It's interesting how that happens, that when you just get somebody out of their mental rut and start them to actually thinking, there is new hope for their soul. Someone said, before you can become converted, you must first become serious. Before you can be converted, you must first become serious, and sadly, most folks aren't there yet. In the first half of the 20th century, there was a man by the name of Frank Morrison. He was a lawyer and a scholar who had come to the opinion that the resurrection Easter story was nothing but a fairy tale, happy ending, ending which spoiled the, uh, the otherwise matchless story of Jesus of Nazareth. He regarded Jesus with the highest esteem, but as he saw it, Christ was a tragic hero 
He was a victim of circumstances and of prejudice. And Morrison planned to write a book on the last tragic days of Jesus, allowing the full horror of the crime and the full heroism of Jesus to shine through. And he would, of course, omit any suspicion of the miraculous. He would utterly discount the idea of the resurrection. But after studying the facts, Morrison had to change his mind. And the book he wrote was quite different than what he planned to write. The book that actually came out was entitled, Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter, interestingly, was entitled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. Through his research, Morrison became a staunch defender of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. And now, I tell you that because I think it's interesting but especially because I believe Morrison's view about the death of Jesus is not uncommon. Many there are who admire Jesus who would not dispute the well-documented fact of his crucifixion, but they see the death of Jesus as a tragic event and the resurrection of Jesus as a myth. To many, maybe to most in our world, the term Good Friday is a mystery. How in the world can we call good a day when bigoted men violently put to death an otherwise wonderful teacher and religious leader? Well, maybe John 10, verse 18 can help us. Start at verse 17, where Jesus is speaking. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Do you see what Jesus is saying in that short verse about his own death? What the evening news may report as the taking of a life, Jesus describes as the laying down of a life. So this is strange language, but it reflects the perspective of Christ. He went to the cross, not an unwilling victim, but a sovereign sacrifice. No one has taken it, my life, from me, not Judas. Not Pilate, not the Jewish leaders, no one has taken it away from me. But still, these people that I mentioned were all guilty in their own way. Judas freely and blamefully betrayed Christ. The Jewish leadership freely and blamefully slandered him and cried out, crucify him. Pilate freely and blamefully sentenced him to death by crucifixion. Yes, all of these were conspirators in the most awful, unjust murder of human history. The fact that these deeds led to Good Friday and the salvation of my soul and maybe yours makes them no less terrible. In the first book in the Bible, we read of ten jealous brothers who sold the brother called Joseph into slavery, and the eventual result of that evil act was the preservation of millions of people, even his own family, from starvation due to a drought. Through the dreams, 
And through the wisdom of this Joseph, who rose to prominence in Egypt, Joseph later told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Jesus could say the same thing to Judas and the priest and the pilot. They all meant it for evil, but a sovereign Lord meant it for great good. So whatever your view of the crucifixion of Jesus, you may want to adjust it to fit this. No one has taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. Now, who else could say that? <laughs> who else does say that? If Jesus is not divine, well, if he's not, if he's not divine, he's psychotic or probably uh, the most arrogant fool that's ever walked the earth. Jesus talks about death like it's his personal yo-yo to let down and to take up again. Maybe he's a fool. Or maybe he's the son of God. The death of Christ, which we remember this week, it was, not, it was not a suicide. Jesus did not kill himself, but he did plan. He did prepare. He did orchestrate all that took place at his death. Now, that, <coughs> that's quite a claim. But the New Testament makes it clear. Long before his death, Jesus says this. Verse 17 again, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Uh, and uh, in, in chapter 10 of the book of John, we read this. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. In Luke 9, 51, it says there came a day when Jesus set his face with resolve to go to Jerusalem. Another translation says he set his face with determination to, to go to Jerusalem. Well, why was that hard? Why did that require resolve? Why did that require determination? It's because Jesus knew what was waiting on him in Jerusalem. He clearly tells his disciples many times over what will take place there. Nothing surprised Jesus at all because Jesus was in control. So much so that his control encompassed the choices of all kinds of people. John 6, verse 70, he said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. When Jesus picked the twelve, he picked one for this role of betrayal. In Luke chapter 22, verse 21, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. This is the upper room scene, the Last Supper. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So I'm trying to show you that Jesus is no tragic victim of fate. He orchestrated the whole thing. When you read the stories of the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln and of John F. Kennedy, it seems that there was some inexorable force drawing Lincoln into Ford's theater and Kennedy to Dallas. It's not there with Jesus at all. The death of Christ is like no other. Lincoln, Kennedy, they were oblivious to their fate. 
You think of the great martyrs of God and His church throughout the ages, John the Baptist, Stephen, Polycarp, John Huss. These were faithful to God unto death. They were not willing to deny Christ to save their own lives, but they were otherwise helpless before their killers. Jesus was never helpless. Matthew 26, verse 51. This is really astounding. Some of you will need to see it uh, in order to believe it. The scene is at night. Judas has led Jesus to his captors, betrayed him with a kiss, and, and then Peter, so is the verse death. Uh, behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. We have one more verse. Or do you think, listen, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And again, I ask, is this guy a fool, or is he the Son of God? A statement like that, hey, it leaves us with very limited options about who Jesus is. Speaking of his life, Jesus says, again, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Does he really? <laughs> Does he really? Was Jesus, as Frank Morrison once taught, a great man put to death by the envious, or was he actually more than a man who laid down willingly his own life? Well, the New Testament is clear. Jesus has said it. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. So I trust you see that Jesus really did this. And uh, let's see now why he did it. Do you know the answer to that? Why did he do it? Why was there a Good Friday? And the answer to that is Jesus was too loving to stay alive. It's kind of an odd concept. Too loving to stay alive. John 10, 11 tells us why Jesus laid down his life. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Why? For the sheep. He did it for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, in verse 26, same chapter, he speaks to his critics and he says this. Uh, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So believers are the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those who follow Jesus are the sheep. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, let's think for a few moments about our sheepness, or is it sheephood? I don't know the exact term. Uh, we often use animals to describe people, you know. Some of you uh, here, you're hawks. Some of you are doves. Some of you are turkeys. Not going to name names. <coughs> Some of you are snakes. Some of you are even pigs. These are figures of speech that uh, they communicate. God is fond of calling us sheep. <clears throat> Why sheep? Well, sheep were dirty animals, and people are sinners. Sheep are dumb animals, and, well, no comment needed here. Uh, sheep cannot survive without a shepherd. Has anyone ever run across a herd of wild sheep out in the woods? 
Think of all the National Geographic shows you've seen. Did any of them feature a herd of wild sheep or a sheep, uh, a, a sheep out by himself in, in the woods? <laughs> no. Bighorn sheep, maybe, but not your livestock type sheep. Such herds do not exist. Sheep without a shepherd are headed for disaster. They are doomed. Now, how are people like that? Whether you know it or not, you are utterly dependent on another. You've got to have a shepherd. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, Jesus saw people and he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And why no shepherd? Well, here's why. The silly sheep ran the shepherd off. And we are those stray sheep. So Isaiah, in his great chapter, the 53rd chapter, said all of us like what? Like sheep have gone astray. The point is that we just thumbed the old nose at the shepherd and went off to do our own thing. But sheep are not meant to do their own thing. Stray sheep don't last very long. They rank high on the menu of every wolf and cat and bear in the forest. Stray sheep die. And so Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sinners die too. Stray sheep die unless the shepherd comes after them to rescue and protect. All right, you ready for some good news here? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The verse goes on. I came that they, the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. I came that these sheep may have life and have it abundantly. This is the concern of Jesus for his sheep. Incredible, isn't it? That the great shepherd has, as his chief concern, the prosperity of his sheep. I come that they might have an abundant life. But the next verse tells us we can only have that if the good shepherd dies for us. And why is that? Why must he die to give his life or to give life to the sheep? Because again, <coughs> the wages of sin is death. And that's a price that must be paid. The sheep deserve death. That is the penalty for straying. The good news is Jesus paid it. Alive, he could be a teacher. Alive, he could be a healer, but not a savior from sin. And his very name, Jesus, means what? Savior. So he died on behalf of, in place of his sheep. And Jesus said he must die. Why? Well, again, he was too loving to stay alive. That's the reason for Good Friday. And by the way, besides calling us his sheep, Jesus also calls us elsewhere his friends. It's good. What kind of, you might wonder, what kind of sheep are also friends? Haven't you ever heard of friend sheep? <laughs> I got that line from Bullwinkle, by the way. John 15, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus had such a love, such a beautiful, such a magnificent. Well, why try? It was a love of unspeakable glory. Well, let no one leave today confused about this. Why did Jesus die? Not because of some bad people who killed him. His life 
He laid down for the sake of his friends, for the sake of his sheep. He was too loving to stay alive. Remember that? That's the good news. And yet there is more. Yes, there's more. For I have only explained Good Friday. What about Easter? Good Friday is only Good Friday in the light of Easter. And so back to our main text, John 10, verse 18. No one takes it away. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. That's Good Friday. I have authority to take it up again. That's today. Jesus here hints at the resurrection, which elsewhere he taught explicitly. He told his disciples he would rise again. He told his enemies he would rise again. His claim was so well known that when Jesus died, his enemies asked the Romans, Roman governor to put a guard around the tomb to make sure there was no monkey business going on, but it did no good, for just as Jesus had authority to lay his life down, he had authority to take it up again, and in Acts 2, when Peter was preaching the gospel, he declared of this Jesus in Acts 2, 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was, what's the next word, <laughs> impossible for him to be held in its power, impossible? Why is that? Well, the answer for this one, Jesus was too great to remain dead. That's your whole outline. Too loving to stay alive, too great to remain dead. When death got hold of Jesus Christ, it bit off more than it could chew. Those of you who fish know what it's like to catch a fish that is too big for your line, right? And if you hold on to that line, you will drown. So you have to uh, what? You have to cut the line and let the fish go. Death had to do that with Jesus. Death had seen a lot of tough fish and had landed them all, but Jesus was too much. Jesus was too much. The language of verse 24, again, is interesting. God raised him up again. And then the Greek literally says, putting an end to the birth pangs of, of death there, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The text shows us death as a, as a pregnant woman carrying a child that has grown too large, and death itself is hurting until its agony ends by delivering Jesus unto life. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus was too great for death to hold him. It managed for three days, I don't know how, but then kerpawi, death let him loose. You know, a balloon can only hold so much air, and then it pops. Death could not contain Jesus. Impossible for him to be held in its power. Now let's look at why. I say that Jesus was too great, but in what way was he too great? Well, first of all, death cannot keep Jesus because he was, he was too holy. Death is for what kind of people? Sinners, yeah. Uh, Jesus was pure and perfect. If he were to die forever, it would be the grossest injustice imaginable. We are born, most of us, with a sense of justice. I mean, you can, you can see it coming out in your two-year-old, can't you? If they have a sibling they're uh, in competition with there. We insist upon justice. I mean, at least for ourselves, if not others. And, and to see the Christ actually die forever, that would destroy any hope for justice. And hope is all we have because we often do not see justice in this life. Oftentimes, the bad guys really do win. 
and the good guys get pounded. That's why, that's why we like you know, certain movies. And you know how the plot line goes? We like those, the older people, we like the Clint Eastwood, the John Wayne films, the Rockies. For the younger folks, you've got Spider-Man, Batman, I don't know who else. I don't know who this John Wick guy is, but he seems to be popular <laughs> these days, too. And they affirm us that, yes, the bad guys get their penalty, and the white hats do win out. We need to believe that. And the resurrection is, to us, proof positive that the good guys will win, evil cannot triumph over the good. God will not let it. So his holy son became Jesus, the victor over sin, over hell, over death. Secondly, death could not keep Jesus because Jesus is life itself. Remember John 14, 6, what does he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is this man a fool? Again, I ask it, or is he the son of God? In some way, Jesus himself, he says, is life beginning of the gospel of John it says in him and Jesus was life and the life was the light of men and just as darkness loses in a battle with light so death falls before life all of us are dependent on another for life but not Jesus he is life and death cannot keep him so thirdly death won't keep Jesus because he is also just too powerful He's too holy, he is life, he's too powerful, he is God himself, the creator of all things. Death is no match for him at all. When it wraps its strong cord around mere men, we're helpless, but Jesus burst forth. One of our hymns says, Alleluia, now we cry to our king immortal, who triumphant burst the bars of the tomb's dark portal. Some would scoff at a resurrection. They'd say, oh, it's impossible that Jesus rose from the dead. Peter says in Acts 2, it's impossible that he would not rise from the dead. You, you may have run across, there may be something in something you read today, in some feed you get on your internet, I, guess, I can't say in your newspaper, since hardly any of us get one of those anymore. But uh, you may run across a list of the most influential people of all history. You ever seen one of these? And... Uh, you know, here's the top 50 people or the 10, 50 most influential people in the history of, of the human race. And Jesus usually gets a mention. In fact, he's usually somewhere in the top 10. Uh, Michael Hart, in his book, he wrote a whole book on the most influential people of all time. He listed Jesus number three. Right behind Muhammad and Isaac Newton. But listen, where would you put Jesus on your, your list? He doesn't really belong in the list at all, okay? He falls into a category all his own. I mean, you listen to people describe the greatness of certain men, and they grope for words. You know, they're stars, they're superstars. I guess some people are constellations. Uh, some go beyond that, but only one man can be called this. Greater than death. They all lived. They all died. 
Only Jesus triumphed over death. We have Good Friday because Jesus was too loving to stay alive. We have Easter because he was too great to stay dead. Too loving to stay alive, too great to stay dead. I have a question for you. Are you too hard-hearted to care? I'm not asking whether you have doubts. Doubting this message, that's understandable. But being indifferent to it really isn't. If one really had a love for sinners so deep that he laid down his life as a sacrifice for their sin, and if one is really so great and so holy and so mighty that he could take up his life after he had laid it down, then every other fact that you've ever learned pales into insignificance. And believe it or not, right here is a room full of otherwise intelligent, sane, Western American, educated adult people who believe those very amazing propositions. In fact, so many people really believe in Good Friday and in Easter that almost every store in America has some kind of Easter display or Easter sale. Who is this Jesus? Is he a fool or is he a deceiver? Or is he really the Son of God? Uh, back when the funny papers were really good, well, back when there were funny papers, back when there was a paper, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, there was a wonderful uh, comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, there's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon in which Hobbes, which is the pet tiger, says to the little boy Calvin who is on a swing, he says, aren't you supposed to be doing your homework? <laughs> and Calvin Calvin responds, I'm pretty sure the assignment was optional. <laughs> and Hobbes says, denial springs eternal. Now listen to little Calvin's response. And Calvin, in the comic strip, he sort of represents the subtle decadence of our culture. And he says this, it's not denial. <laughs> this cracks me up. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just very selective about the reality I accept. <laughs> I'm just very selective about the reality I accept. Calvin there speaks what the fool will only think. <laughs> when a resurrected Jesus is a reality... Does it make sense to reject that reality? Does it make sense to ignore the implications of his reality? And are you really so apathetic that you won't even look in to the story of Jesus? Are you really too busy playing games to read the biblical record of Christ's life? Say it's not so. But don't just say it, do something about it. Tell a Christian friend you'd like to know more. You'd like to have a, have a dialogue. Let me know about it. I'll be happy to meet you myself. Determine to read through the Gospels. Don't just watch something about Jesus on the History Channel. Go to the original source. Find out who this man is. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching before the philosophical capital of the world there in Athens, Greece, when he says this about God. 
He, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Of course they did. These are like some of you. But it goes on. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So you can sneer and go your way, or you can say, as Frank Morrison said, you know, this is worth looking into. Some of you are among the others, and if you are, don't squelch that interest. Pursue the truth. And if you are ready today, well, I, I invite you today to the Savior. In the book of Romans, I'll be preaching on this in about a month, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved even today by doing that from the very things that bind you. Confess your sins, turn from them, and turn from yourself unto a living Christ who waits for your embrace and promises the one who comes to me. The one who comes to me, I will not cast out. So come to him. Come to Jesus today. And on the, on the, on the assurance of the resurrection, I can say with Jesus, you will be saved. And as I pray this morning, I'm going to pray as though I were one of you coming to Christ for the first time. And if that is your heart, make the words of my lips the prayer of your heart. Let's go to God. Lord, I have been living in sin. I have been living apart from this reality of Jesus, the risen Lord. Forgive me for where I've been. I leave it all now to come to you, to come to Jesus. Risen Savior, wash me from all my sin and take up residence in my heart to make me your new and your faithful disciple. Give me eternal life with you and let it begin this day. Amen.